It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So a couple of weeks ago, Ed, you said these party conferences can be overshadowed by big events that happen in the rest of the world. And of course, neither of us would have possibly thought that there would be these horrific massacres in Israel by Hamas and the Israeli response. It's true. I mean, Keir Starmer almost certainly would have been in Liverpool or on his journey to Liverpool when he found out what was going on Saturday morning. Suddenly it changes everything. I remember being with Gordon Brown on the day of 9-11 and him turning to me an hour after the planes had hit the Twin Towers and saying, this will change the course of politics in Britain and the world for the next decade. And he was right about that and overshadowed all of the party conferences in 2001. To some extent, the same was true this week in Liverpool. Obviously, Keir Starmer talked about other things, but as far as the news is concerned, the big issue is those terrible events. And of course, that's what we've got to start with today, the politics, but also the economic implications of what is happening in Israel and Palestine at the moment. And then we should do justice to the Labour conference because... I thought it was a very accomplished conference, but I think there are some things that Keir Starmer could have done even better than he did. And we will talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the housing market because clearly interest rates up, housing market slowing. Keir Starmer saying he wants to build more homes. Will building homes ease the huge challenge of high house prices for young people? Or is something else going on which may make things easier for first time buyers in the coming years? We're going to talk about that. Too. And has he opened up a bit of a flank on the green belt? Yes, yeah. political implications as well. It turns out he is, like you, George, a Yimby. And we'll be telling you what a Yimby is later on. First of all, though, we're going to start by talking about um, the events which from Saturday morning unfolded horrifically on the border of northern Gaza and southern Israel. And um, 
a united front of politicians in Britain, Keir Starmer as a leader of the opposition, agreeing with Rishi Sunak in condemnation and support for Israel, also in many capitals around uh, the world. Do you know, on Monday I went to an exhibition of Don McCullen's photographs and he was a famous war photographer, Britain's most famous war photographer, very much still with us. And I, it made me reflect that in those days you saw the atrocity of war and the atrocity of terrorist crime through photographs taken by the likes of McCullen and published in newspapers. Whereas in the case of these horrific attacks in Israel by Hamas, I received from friends of mine awful photos, appalling, bloody photos of innocent men, women and children killed by the Hamas terrorists, sent to me because my friends wanted me to know, and I'm sure they sent it to lots of other, what had actually happened, and not to allow the political implications and the economic implications, which of course we will talk about, to overshadow the simple fact that a massacre had taken place and a sort of barbarism had been visited on innocent Israeli citizens, the likes of which, you know, we have not seen. We had that debate on Good Morning Britain on Tuesday morning. The terrible photos were um, kind of in the newspapers, in particular a bloodstained cot. And we had a debate at 5.30 in the morning. Should we show these pictures at breakfast time? And our view was very clearly that people want the truth to be seen and to be told. And it was important those photos are are used. And um, I think very many people in Britain, Jewish people in Britain, want the truth to be told and to be to be seen. And it's a duty for the media to do that. Gotta say, it was such a shock on Saturday. I hadn't realised he'd said this, but two weeks before at a Middle East conference, uh, Jake Sullivan, who is the senior advisor to Joe Biden, had said that um, the Middle East was low down his pecking order. It didn't give him sleepless nights anymore. There were other big risks in the world. And he will look back on those comments and think, how could I and I think this is true of global intelligence, clearly in Israel too. How did people miss the preparations for this terrible Hamas attack? It was a bit like the Michael Fish moment with the hurricane, wasn't it? <laughs> the US National Security Advisor telling us two weeks ago not to worry about the Middle East anymore. It, I think it's obviously a massive intelligence failure. So there was always a view that Mossad, that's Israel's intelligence agency, was the preeminent agency in the Western world, you know, better than MI6, better than the CIA, often using methods that we wouldn't use in this country, and that they had such a penetration of the various threats around them. They were in Gaza, they were in the West Bank. They, of course, also had the physical security wall as a country, which I'm sure you visited, Ed, and I have. There was just an assumption this kind of thing could never happen. The Israelis would never allow this thing to happen. And so it's not just the brutality of the slaughter. It's also the complete surprise that a country that one felt was the preeminent country of protecting its citizens from terrorist attacks allowed this to happen on its watch. And for US policy, I mean, trying to broker an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to try and uh, stabilise the region, that now looks... Um, bit naive? Well, uh, you know, I'm absolutely no fan of Donald Trump. But the one piece of foreign policy that he really achieved a great success in was reconciling Israel with some of the Gulf states, some of the Arab Gulf states. And these so-called Abraham Accords were signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And then the big prize, which was, I think, only weeks away, was a, a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, Saudi being, of course, the dominant Gulf state. And that now looks completely off the table. 
partly because of the Saudi response, which was to say, we don't support these attacks, but Israel's had it coming because of the way they've uh, treated the Palestinians or because of the way they haven't engaged in trying to find a two-state solution. And that's caused, you know, revulsion in Israel and made it impossible for that to happen. You know, which, by the way, from Hamas's point of view is sad to say, because obviously I don't in any way support or condone what they've done. They will feel that's a victory that they have stopped in its tracks the developments that were making Israel more secure in its neighbourhood. The danger is, because of the the surprise, the shock, the setback for Israeli defence and intelligence, that what will inevitably be a strong response from Israel is going to be even stronger to try and make up lost ground. Good news, as far as I can see, that um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has formed a war government which reaches into the centre ground of politics to try and build consensus. But even even so, I guess the one thing that you and I now are in a position to say publicly is that uh, if you think back to the weekend, Rishi Sunak projecting the Israeli flag on Downing Street, absolutely behind Israel's right to respond, Keir Starmer using similarly uncompromising language, but in private in Downing Street, and I think probably in Keir Starmer's office too, there will be great worry and great concern. Things that they can't express at the moment without seeming to not support Israel in its time of need. Because, of course, how Israel responds and the nature of its incursion into Gaza, the damage it does, the loss of life of Palestinians, innocent Palestinian families and children who are being killed because of the actions of Hamas, what that does to Israel standing in the world, to stability in the Middle East, is now hugely uncertain. And let's be honest, I can say this. If Israel goes in too heavy and in a sort of carpet bombing way, the damage that could do to stability in the Middle East is massive now. And maybe that's what Hamas wants. But if I was Rishi Sunak, I would be very worried. And I'd be thinking to myself, do I have any way to kind of counsel the Israelis to think proportionately about what they do? So there's a righteous anger when something like this happens, which I think we all feel. And there's an almost sort of biblical, you know, an eye for an eye. There's got to be retribution. There's got to be retaliation. Yeah, And I don't think we should sort of dismiss that. And I think it's too easy to be the kind of armchair commentator you know, on podcasts like this, on the radio and say, you know, well, well, Israel needs to think of its exit strategy, needs to think of its long-term plan. You know, the first thing's first But Rishi Sunak will be thinking yes, that. Yes. So, but the first thing's first, you know, you can't be the leader of Israel, whatever you think of Benjamin Netanyahu, and not respond, you know, with full aggression to what has happened. Because you, you, the public demand it. And by the way, the British public in past situations where there have been atrocities in America when after 9-11, there's been a similar feeling. That's absolutely the case. But I think what you are saying, Ed, is very important, which is almost all of the Western politicians at the moment, the British political establishment, the American political establishment, is simply saying we stand with Israel. But I think there'll be general unease in the broader populations here and across the West at the bombings in Gaza. And a feeling there's got to be some limit to this. We understand the the demand for a response. We understand the determination to eliminate Hamas. But where is this really leading? And is killing a Palestinian baby 
in any way a proper response to the killing of Israeli babies. And I think that will grow that feeling over the next few weeks. And it will make the politics of this very difficult for all of these governments. The truth be told, and you and I know this, Ed, the British Prime Minister has limited influence over the state of Israel in a situation like this. I mean, he will probably be getting as much news from the TV as he will be from MI6 or the Foreign Office. And the real players here are, of course, the Israelis and the Americans. You know, they will want to make sure that there is American support doesn't have to be explicit, but tacit Americans above what they're doing. And do you think Netanyahu is the kind of guy who listens to external counsel? Will he not just take a call from President Biden, but listen to what Biden says to him? Well, first of all, relations between Netanyahu and Biden were at a very low ebb before this. Second, I've, I've met Netanyahu quite a few times over the years. I met him when he was first prime minister almost 20 years ago when I was in opposition met him when he was prime minister he you know he is an incredibly physically domineering and self-confident individual i remember going to see him in his office as prime minister in israel as chancellor and i was shown into a sort of very small room about the size of this recording studio which is pretty small there was a round table like the round table in front of us here about the same size you know which is maybe just over a meter across he came in it was just me and him he put his feet up on this table and he lit a big cigar, offered me a cigar, which I said no to. And it, it was, you know, he was filling the room quite literally with his body and with his cigar smoke. And I was thinking there must be so many people in this room who've been intimidated by this. You know, that strength has one of the reasons why he's continually found himself re-elected as prime minister and managed to outmaneuver all those who've tried to get rid of him over the years. I think it's a good thing, you know, as someone who supports the state of Israel, that he's formed this war coalition, that he's put to the side these divisions that have happened in Israeli society recently over his proposed reforms to the Supreme Court. It's how he uses now this political capital, this goodwill he's got around the world after what has happened. And all eyes will be on what he does next. In particular in in Gaza, I am... Um... I went to Gaza back in 2006. All oh, right, I see. I've never been to Gaza. I've been to the West Bank, but that is really interesting. So what, what, tell me what it was like. It was just before Hamas was elected. And uh, I think since then, it's been much harder to go into Gaza. I've been to the West Bank lots of times, but Gaza is different and much more hard to, to go to. I was commissioned to do a report. It was actually by the G7, the G7 biggest government. It was me and John Cunliffe, who's now Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, to do a report on the economic prospects for the two-state solution. It was about learning from the Northern Ireland experience for what might happen between Israel and Palestine at a time when there was optimism. This was when Olmert uh, was the finance minister, uh, Salam Fayyad was the Palestinian finance minister. They were actually working quite closely together. It all fell apart after Hamas was elected. And we were saying, you know, the Northern Ireland experience says you can use economics to advance peace but on the basis of there being proper security and proper mobility. And clearly, since Hamas was elected, security and mobility have gone just like hugely into reverse. But we went into Gaza and... Um, is, be, it, is it like the West Bank? Is it like those towns you go to, like Bethlehem or Janine? Or? It's not. I mean, when you go to the West Bank, the contrast of development between um, Israel and the West Bank is, is stark, but... In the West Bank, there's been a lot of development over the years. Back then, I've been to lots of the poorest countries in the world in Africa. The contrast of going from Israel into Gaza was like nothing 
I've ever experienced in my life in terms of the the move from modernity to sort of abject poverty and dereliction. It was shocking. It's also incredibly densely populated. Two million people in this tiny strip of land, two million plus, I think, incredibly young population, um, one of the youngest populations in the world. And the schools are under such pressure that schools would, you know, um, you'd either be in the early morning school or the lunchtime school and the afternoon school. So children were always in the street going to and from school, but picking their way through the most kind of appalling And it must be so much worse, got worse under the Hamas leadership. They are the government in Gaza. And, of course, must be devastating now with the Israeli strikes. Of course. Waiting for this Israeli land invasion to happen. But what you realise is a land invasion in such complex density, very, very hard to um, So when we look at oil markets, world stock markets, how have they reacted to these events? Well, I think from an economic point of view... It was pretty devastating for Gaza anyway, but clearly this is a setback, a huge setback for the Israeli economy. I think generally people don't think so far this is a big global economic event. If you think back to 50 years ago, 1973, when you had um, the beginning at Yom Kippur of the um, Israeli-Arab war. Which people have drawn comparisons with because that was a surprise attack and uh, Israel wasn't expecting it and they thought it would Israel would never be caught by surprise again. So that's why people draw this comparison. But the economic impact, not the same. Well, because it unleashed a massive period of inflation and global instability in the world. You had, first of all, the Arab countries restricted oil supply, oil prices quadrupled. At the same time, the Bretton Woods exchange rate regime was coming to an end, big injection of American inflation into the world. You also had in Britain the Barber budgets, which were very inflationary after the three-day week of Ted Heath. All of that led to inflation in Britain at 25%, small recession, terrible years for Labour trying to keep inflation under control in the years which came. And all of that started with the beginning of events in Israel. I think today, most people will say there's not a parallel. There's not been a big reaction of the oil price. This will be a terrible event for Israel and for the Palestinian territories, not wider implications so far. That's what the markets are saying. However, if the politics of this deteriorates, if Iran is drawn in and seen to be part of it, suddenly... Interesting. Iran is saying, you know, we didn't know this was being planned. They're not revelling in it, which they might have done. You could imagine an Iran that was saying, yes, absolutely. We knew all about this. We were behind it. They're you know, known to be the state sponsor of Hamas. They've gone out of their way to say, we might have known Hamas were thinking of something, but we had no idea it was of this scale or this timing. And that's because they don't want to be drawn into a direct conflict with Israel. Israel has long planned for such a, an attack, mainly around Iran's nuclear facilities. Of course, if there are direct links established with Iran. I think Israel will feel it has to go after that Iranian link. And that's another reason why Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak in Downing Street will be worrying, because if the Israeli reaction provokes a wider response in the region, and that starts to affect the oil price. We talked about the importance of oil prices a few weeks ago. If the oil price spikes, then suddenly this becomes much more complicated for global inflation, British inflation, global growth, British growth, and that is what people will be fearing might happen. At the moment, not going to happen, but it could. Of course, for anyone wondering why this conflict doesn't lead to a big spike in oil prices, unlike the Ukraine-Russia conflict, the reason is Russia is a huge producer of oil and gas. Israel isn't, although some 
natural resources, and key pipelines went through Ukraine. So the oil price has already gone up a lot. That global instability that the 1973 war unleashed is already present in our planet. And that was the backdrop for the Labour conference. And of course, if there is a Labour government in a year's time, they will probably be inheriting a deeply unstable Middle East as a result of the events that happened this week. So the Labour conference has just ended. You weren't there, but how do you think it went? I think they will be very pleased. They went into the conference out of the Scottish by-election win, which was a big boost. And I think they'll come out thinking that it all went as well as it could have done. If you contrast the discipline of the Labour conference compared to um, the week before in Manchester for the Conservatives, we had all the Liz Truss and Nigel Farage. There weren't any diversions. The main things this week were Rachel Reeves' speech on Monday, Keir Starmer's on Tuesday. They will have got the messages they wanted across. And um, I think they'll feel pretty happy. I think both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer will be happy with their speeches. I thought you've got two strong speeches here by both party leaders. And I thought Keir Starmer's was particularly interesting when he said the things you weren't going to expect him to say. He talked about a smaller state. He, he said, we should never forget that politics should tread lightly on people's lives. I thought that was a very interesting statement from someone from the left. And he talked about comparing government to a car. We don't need a bigger car. We need a more powerful engine. So I thought that was all targeting, essentially, those who fear that Labour governments mean bigger governments. And he did use kind of key moments to reach out to Conservative voters around things like support for business. Where I think he missed an opportunity was to establish a link with the Conservative governments of the last 13 years, and to say that just in the same way that David Cameron was the heir to Blair and the way that Tony Blair presented himself as the heir to Margaret Thatcher, remember Margaret Thatcher was one of the first people to visit Tony Blair in Downing Street when he became Prime Minister. Keir Starmer's just simply dismissing 13 years of Tory government. And if you do that, there's a risk that you're dismissing the many millions of people who voted Tory in those four general elections. And here's a clip from his speech, which I think shows he hasn't quite found a message that brings those Tory voters over. 13 years of things can only get better versus 13 years of things have only got worse. <laughs> Conference, this is what we have to fight. The Tory project to kick the hope out of this country. See, so, what is the message there to the many people who voted Conservative in 2019, 2017, 2015, and indeed in 2010? You've got to give them a bridge to say, not you were wrong, you should never have voted Tory, but I understand why you voted Tory, not just in 2019 against Jeremy Corbyn, but in 2015 and in 2010. And we understand that, we've learned from it, we're building on some of the things that the Tory government has done. And it's a classic mistake in politics. And I think it's a mistake that the Labour Party quite often makes because it's got such sort of moral fervour in its movement, not to understand why people voted Conservative in the last four general elections and delivered Conservative prime ministers. And Keir Starmer has not, to my mind, put himself in that line of succession that goes Margaret Thatcher to Tony Blair to David Cameron to a Starmer government. 
I think you might just be being a bit touchy there because he's um, dumping on your time as Chancellor and, you know, he's bound to say 13 wasted years. I mean, I think you'll find Tony Blair saying very similar things. I think that actually there's something different going on here. I think he is being a bit less ambitious. You're right about that. He wasn't saying to um, Conservatives, become Labour. He was saying the Conservative Party has changed. It's not really your Conservative Party anymore. He was looking at what happened with Liz Truss, some of the things that Suella Braven was saying, and saying that isn't really the kind of Conservative you voted for in 2010, 2015. I think you could feel OK about that. In some ways, that's what Rishi Sunak should have said, and you were annoyed at him when he dumped on you and David Cameron rather than Liz Truss. I think what he was saying was not become Labour. He was saying, lend us your vote for the next election. Let's get the Johnson Truss mess out of the way and let's get things back on an even keel. You know, he could have been more ambitious and tried to make that bigger argument. I'm not sure if he felt there was sufficient optimism in the country which allows him to do that in the way there was in 1997. So you know, I well, wonder whether I, he's I, just I, being a bit less ambitious and um, rather no, but than... The way you, what you've just said is exactly what I would like to have heard from Starmer. I understand why you voted in 2010 Conservative, why you voted Conservative in 2015, but the Conservative Party has changed, it's left behind some of those things. doesn't mean you can't also have a pop at austerity and, you know, <laughs> George Osborne's budgets and whatever. But you have to create some kind of route for a voter to say, I'm not being told I was stupid. I'm not being told I got my vote wrong. But I am being given a reason now to switch from the Tories to Labour. There is something about his particular challenge, which compares to David Cameron or to Tony Blair. I mean, Tony Blair had over a decade from Michael Foote in 1983 to prepare to become a Labour Prime Minister. David Cameron had also a similarly long period. What Keir Starmer was trying to do is change the Labour Party from Corbyn 2019 to him in 2023. To be, you know, He's truncating what is normally a 15-year project into three. He's actually done that amazingly well. I mean, mm. if you look at his control at this conference, and I think partly also what he does is he tries to unite the whole Labour Party by attacking the last 13 years because that's an easy way to hold people together, while at the same time laying down things which are actually very difficult for some parts of the Labour Party, especially the Corbyn Labour Party, who can't stand him now, I mean, by the way, to deal with. Ed, can you imagine if Jeremy Corbyn had been Labour leader this week and how Labour would have responded to those attacks in Israel? But the fact that it is already unimaginable is a testament to the journey Keir Starmer has gone over in three years. It's amazing. The bit I didn't like in Keir Starmer's speech was actually this clip. Listen to this. No more government contracts awarded by the back door. No more cleaners mocked as they scrub mess off the walls of illegal parties in Westminster. Illegal parties in Westminster? I mean, these were illegal parties in 10 Downing Street under Boris Johnson. Why does he want to broaden his attack from Johnson's Downing Street to Westminster. There is a strand in Keir Starmer who wants to say, you know, I'm not a politician like the rest of them, to be anti the old style of politics. Politics is failing, anti-Westminster. I mean, that kind of anti-politics populism is really dangerous for a Labour leader because if he becomes Prime Minister, quite quickly, he's going to be making very difficult decisions. He's going to need to bind people together. He's going to need to say, this is 
Westminster politics doing our best in difficult circumstances I mean, to change the country. If he's dumped on politics in no. Westminster, how does he then and make people believe all, in politics again? Also, it's not unlike Rishi Sunak trying to persuade us all he's the sort of anti-politician politician, which is completely unconvincing. <laughs> the focus groups are telling them to say this, but it's not good but politics Keir, for the long Sir term. Sir Keir Starmer, the former director of public prosecutions, used to be a permanent secretary in Whitehall. The idea that he's the anti-establishment candidate, I mean, come on. Neither of these political leaders are convincingly mm. running against Westminster or Whitehall. And they've got uh, people telling they, them, say this, it's popular with the public, but it's not, I don't think It's all the, the hangover end. from the success of the Brexit referendum, of course, oh, isn't no, it? But you've, but you've, there was you've got to rebuild speech. confidence in politics rather than knock it down. Of course, there was another speech this week, which arguably was more important than Keir Starmer's. I wouldn't have said this in advance, but I thought Rachel Reeves really established herself now as the sort of iron shadow chancellor and clearly the number two figure now in the Labour movement, not the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, not other members of the shadow cabinet. It was Rachel Reeves's show at the beginning of the week. And of course, Rachel had a rabbit out of the hat, which is essential for any good conference speech. It was supposed to be at the beginning, ended up at the end of her speech. I think Jan's got a question about it. Hi, Ed and George. How significant and helpful is Mark Carney's endorsement of Rachel Reeves? I think we ought to play the endorsement so people know what we're talking about, don't you? Rachel Reeves is a serious economist. She began her career at the Bank of England, so she understands the big picture. But crucially, she also understands the economics of work, of place, and of family. It's beyond time to put her ideas and energy into action. Stirring stuff. A former governor of the Bank of England basically endorsing a Labour shadow chancellor, the man appointed to the top job by Charles Exchequer, George Osborne. What did you do? Well, I pursued him. I pursued Mark Carney around the world to get his endorsement. I had to persuade him. He was the governor of the Bank of Canada. He was very much the person I wanted to succeed Mervyn King. I knew it was probably one of the most important decisions I'd make as chancellor. And so... I first of all approached him in a Japanese restaurant in Mexico City, in the fringes of one of those international conferences, and sealed the deal finally in a tiny hotel room in Tokyo. I can't, I'm not sure what people must have thought. There was sort of security in the corridor because it was this big conference. And they saw me and Mark go into this tiny bedroom and not emerge for an hour. But... Uh, we had joined forces in that room and he was going to go on and announce that he was governor. I tell you, the best things I remember from that period was I had to go and tell the Queen, the late Queen, that um, we had got Mark Carney to agree and everyone else I'd told had been amazed by it. So what a coup. How did you manage to get him to take that job and move from Canada? The Queen was completely nonplussed. She was. She regarded it as a sort of intercompany transfer from one part of her realm to another, from Canada to to England. It didn't seem to make any difference to her, but uh, it was a big, big coup. I felt. I should say that your reaction, Ed, on the day was pretty important because I was not sure how the country would take to having someone who was not a British citizen was from Canada, although, of course, there are lots of close ties with Canada, how they'd feel about someone like that making big decisions on the price of their mortgages and essentially whether people would have work or not. It was one of the very few times I ever agreed with you in the House of Commons because I'd worked with Mark very closely when I was the UK G20 deputy and he was the Canadian G20 finance deputy. We went to lots of meetings together. So when you announced this, I said, good decision. No, we, we had all sorts of plans. You if looked you, a bit if shocked. You, yeah, 
because I had all sorts of plans in place if you'd said, we're not supporting this, we're going to have a vote in the House of Commons. I then went back to the Treasury. He said, well, that went really well. And Mark was on the television in Canada doing a press conference explaining his decision because it had just been announced to the Canadian people. And he was speaking in French. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going disastrously wrong. But could someone get hold of me? He can't speak French at the moment. It's really going to convince people we've got some Frenchman coming, which obviously would have been totally unacceptable. When he arrived um, in, in, in the UK and became the governor, his office put a call through to me to say, um, could we go to dinner at a local neighbourhood restaurant? He wanted to go to somewhere to kind of get the feel of um, London. So I picked this Vietnamese restaurant just above Shoreditch called Song K. And we sat in the middle of this packed restaurant, the Shadow Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England, and talked about global economics and politics and everything. And nobody had any idea who either of us were. We just sat there in the middle of this restaurant and had a... Um, That's because you hadn't done time. Strictly Come Dancing yet. I hadn't done Strictly Yeah, and neither had Mark. Although, to be quite honest... <laughs> he was a rock star. You could imagine Mark Carney doing yes, Canadian Strictly could. Come Dancing. Well, anyway, listen, listen, we're going off subject. I've seen, Mark, is, I've seen Mark dancing and he's a pretty natty dancer. Where? But, where, where have you well, seen him dancing? I can't tell you. Let can't, us, well, you, you let, know and I, no, let, we can't say. Let us not go there. We're going off subject. Yes, we are. What but, does Mark Carney's endorsement mean for Rachel Reeves? Well, I think it's pretty significant. And I'm going to say two things about this. First of all, it's a sign of fut- of things to come. There are going to be a whole load of people who over the next year have worked with or in some ways supported Conservative governments over the last 13 years who are going to come out and support Labour, either because they think Labour's the right government for the country or because, frankly, they're taking the view they're going to win anyway, so I better get on board. And I know that because as Shadow Chancellor, I ruthlessly pursued anyone who had ever supported New Labour. People like Sir Peter Gershon, David Freud, you'll remember these names, most people won't, but they were people who'd worked for Labour and we got them over to the Tories and that was significant. I think, second, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you think a single member of the Tory cabinet Anyone at Downing Street phoned Mark Carney in the last year? Well, they should have done. They didn't. They not. Whereas I bet Rachel was, you know, pursuing him. And to me, it's about appetite for winning. Do you really, really want it? Are you really hungry for it? And if you're really hungry for it, if you're the Conservatives, you've got to keep this coalition that's got you, the broader Conservative coalition that's got you in. You've got to keep the people who work with you, supporting you. They're not doing that at all. In fact, at the moment, they're telling everyone... You're all part of some failed past. Labour want it. And I saw the Carney endorsement as the clearest sign of their appetite for power. It was a brilliant coup. And actually, it worked to her advantage, the fact that it came at the end of her speech rather than the beginning. We'd said last week what you have to Why do... Why did you say I didn't realise it was supposed to be at the beginning? And the... Uh, no, no, it was supposed to be at the beginning of the speech. The video didn't work. She had to carry on. She actually read this passage in her speech, which made not much sense because the endorsement hadn't been played. And then it came afterwards. But because it came after and was extra, hmm. I think it really worked to her advantage. We were saying last week as Shadow Chancellor, you have to get out there and deal with your opponent's attacks before they get the chance to attack you. And I thought she did that very well, including what she said around um, kind of waste in public spending around procurement. She will feel that she had a very good week. And if I was to guess, by the end of the week, the last night in, in Manchester, I know Rachel really well. She was my number two for a long time. She does a really good Beyonce at karaoke. And I think there'd have been a bit of late night karaoke. And finally... It's a bit of a feature of these conferences. Well, I mean, look... 
What would you, what would her songs have been? I am. Um, I, I think we should get her to come on our podcast in future and tell us her favourite songs. But my memory is put a ring on it, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, a bit of Halo. That's what I remember. The thing about karaoke is you can get everybody in a room, shut the door in a, like a booth or in your hotel room. And finally, everybody can relax away from the TV cameras. In your hotel room? Well, Kara- you can't have karaoke in your hotel room. Of course room. you can. If you do Spotify karaoke, of course you can. You just play the songs and make it work. Need a decent speaker. We actually, um, I think it was back in 2012 when we were in Manchester, Yvette and I decided we would do karaoke in our room just for our close teams. We thought, you know, about 20 people, about 120 people turned up. But where it was, was this? In the Midland Hotel, in our hotel room. In your room? In our room, but it spilled into the corridor and it was becoming a bit loud. And I remember it really well. My um, guy who worked for me coming over and said, we have a problem. The management are here. And they say, if this party doesn't end, it was only about 10 at night, doesn't end in the next five minutes, the people who have booked into this room will be banned for life from the Midland Hotel in Manchester, which was me and Yvette, and we thought we couldn't really afford to be banned for life. You know, this would have been the opposite of a bit of late-night karaoke to let our hair down. So we had to say to everybody, that's it, downstairs, and they all went down to the bar, and that was the the end of it. Well, the best of those conference stories that I ever heard happened to Desmond Swain, rather eccentric Tory MP. Wasn't he David Cameron's PPS. He was David Cameron's PPS. He came in to... PPS means Parliamentary Private Secretary, the guy who, who looks after him in Parliament. Yes. And he came in to breakfast the day after this happened. And he said he, at about four in the morning, he had... He was in bed, naked. It's an important part of the story. <laughs> and he goes to the bathroom. We don't need more detail. He goes to the bathroom uh, in his room. It's pitch dark. And he opens the door, closes the door behind him. And he realises instead of going into the bathroom, he's walked into the corridor and the door has shut behind him and locked him out. So he is naked, <laughs> naked in the corridor. At the Tory party conference. Without and a key to get back in. No key to get back in. And presumably and he, didn't have, he didn't have one on his person because he was in the buff. He was in the buff. And so what does he do? Well, he ums and ahs with it. He can't get out in the lift. But, so he goes to the end of the corridor. He finds one of those fire hoses you get in those big old hotels. He wraps himself in this fire hose, goes down in the lift Anyone who's been at a party conference will know there are thousands of people in the lobby still at three, four, five in the morning all getting pissed. And he had to come out of the lift wrapped in this fire hose to get a key from reception. To be honest, at a Labour conference, that would have caused a scene. But to be honest, four in the morning, people walking around naked, wrapped around in rubber at the Tory party conference is probably pretty normal, isn't it? That was generally par for the course. But this was, this was <laughs> even by their standards, pretty exceptional. <laughs> right. Now, let's get back to the serious <laughs> substance here, which is Starmer's big announcement as we should, was about house building. And in his speech, he said he's going to build one and a half million homes mm. Over the course of the next Labour government, we've heard that before from Labour and Tory politicians, but it does beg some questions of what is actually happening to the housing market right now and is house building the issue. That's something we're going to talk about next. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. So we've had this voice note from Millie. Hi, Ed and George. What do you both think can be done to reduce nimbyism and planning objections? I'm a young person who feels like my goal of home ownership is slipping further from reach. What is the answer to this crisis? There's no doubt, Millie, that to own a home as a first-time buyer is much, much harder now for people in their 20s and 30s than it ever was 20, 30 years ago. When George and I were in our 20s, the average house price was just three times the average income of somebody in work. Today, it's more like eight times. If you are a young person in London, where London house prices are much higher and young people's earnings are lower, it's going to be even bigger multiple than that. People say that you used to have to um, to save for two or three years to get your deposit 30 years ago. Now people are saving for 10 years and more to try and do that. Very hard to get uh, onto the housing ladder until you're into your But is 30s. that a house building? Is that because, is Keir Starmer right, that is the issue here that we've not been building enough homes? Because that's certainly been what people have assumed, and that's been the tenor of the political debate for recent years. Well, I think the economics of that is more complicated. Look, there's no doubt that we've been building fewer homes in the 80s, 90s, 2000s than we did in the 50s and the 60s. But that isn't really enough to explain the huge scale of this rise in house prices and also why it's so much more expensive to pay your mortgage or to pay rent, even though interest rates are low. And the key is low interest rates. Because I think what economists say now is that in this very low interest rate... This is before the last year or so when interest rates have gone up. Yes, um, over the last 15 years of or 20 years of low interest rates. What's happened? If you see housing as like a financial asset, uh, imagine that you've bought a house and you're going to get rent every year into the future. If interest rates are really high, then discounting means you only really think about um, those rents for a few years. In a, in a low interest rate environment like we've had, people can value more highly those rents for 10, 15, 20, 30 years into the future. And if the, the future rents are higher in value, that then means that house prices are higher. So a low interest rate environment leads to higher house prices. And perversely, even though the interest rates are low, it also leads to higher housing costs as well, because the house prices are so much bigger, and therefore people have bigger mortgages. So what's happening at the moment? Are we simply seeing falling house prices over the last year, just because of the Bank of England doing short term rises in interest rates? Or are we moving into an era where interest rates are going to be much higher than they've been for the last 15 years, for 10, 15, 20 years. If they are, house prices will be lower. That will ease the pressure on first-time 
buyers. It'll make it, it easier for people to get back into the housing market. That isn't to do with, with house building. But that's, that's to do with counter, interest rates. It's very counterintuitive. I mean, that you're saying that higher interest rates are good for first-time buyers or people trying to get into the housing market because those who already have wealth, who already have assets, are not able to use low interest rates to leverage them to buy more houses and push house prices up. It's exactly right that the toughest time for first-time buyers has been the period where interest rates were lower because in those periods, house prices were higher and it turned out that the actual cost of buying a house through your mortgage payments or your rent was much higher, even in a low interest rate environment. So therefore, as interest rates go up, house prices become lower. That could ease the pressure for first-time buyers. And that is probably a more important factor than the volume of house building that Keir Starmer is announcing. What he's announcing could be really good for the economy, shortages of housing, harder to buy a home near where you work, um, a a drag on the economy. So there's a good economic reason to increase house building, but it may not be the thing which makes the difference to the level of house prices and the pressures on young people. So I thought it was pretty interesting that he chose house building and home ownership as a big topic of his speech. That's not what you'd always expect from a Labour leader. He could have talked, for example, a lot about renters and the rights of tenants and so on. Curiously, it's the Conservative government that's passing the legislation in that space and wanting to talk about rights for tenants. But you have a Labour leader talking about housing, talking about house building. You know, The word that sums that up is aspiration. But I was wondering, you know, my, my political antenna, I was saying, but has he opened a big flank here? Has, in an election which is going to be tight, certainly if he wants to get an overall majority, has he given the Tories a big opportunity. It's interesting, you're right. He actually aligned himself with with you. The debate in the Conservative Party, as far as I know, is between NIMBYs, people who are saying, we don't want to build more houses near to us. And a year ago, um, Rishi Sunak was forced into a U-turn in Parliament to drop local housing targets because there was so much opposition. On the other side, there's people who are saying, let's build more homes the Yimbies. I always thought you were... Yes in my backyard. Yeah, yes in my backyard. That's I, what it stands for. I always thought you were a bit of a Yimby, George, and it turns out yeah, that, but I had a Ke- lot. that Keir Starmer has decided to do a BBC TV interview where he aligns himself with you. Let's listen. Are you a Yimby? Yes in my backyard. I am, yes. This is quite risky. So what Keir Starmer and, and I had in common is we both sat on very safe seats. And mine, a Conservative seat in Cheshire, in the Green Belt... And one of the biggest issues there was opposition to house building. And there were very organised local campaigns, often run by you know highly articulate, well-qualified, retired people who had been high court judges or accountants or solicitors working in Manchester, who could now devote all their energy to stopping a local housing development. And as a local MP, I would always uh, refuse to support them. I was very much in favour of house building in my own constituency. But I had a big luxury, which was a Big majority, not by the way, it's a majority, you know, I'm not going to claim that I I uniquely built this majority up. It was a classically conservative area. And the easy thing to do as a local MP is to side with those who oppose housing development. And if you're sitting on a marginal seat, there is a real political price you potentially pay. Tell me about it. I think of yours as a more kind of industrial seat in West Yorkshire, but maybe no, 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 no. It was um, it was a marginal seat on the edge of Leeds. It actually was boundaried by Bradford, Kirklees, Wakefield, and Leeds. It was right by the motorways, and 
the housing issue was hugely contentious because it was on the edge of the green belt. And so exactly these pressures, I always knew we needed to build more houses in our country. um, But the local politics of opposition was very hard to, to deal with. Andrea Jenkins opposed every development everywhere. And I... In case you don't know who Andrea Jenkins is, she's the Tory MP who beat Ed. And then um, voted against your referendum and, um, you know, danced upon your political grave. But moving on... <laughs> I, um, I, still have some, yeah, I still have some affection for Andrew, but anyway. It's one thing to say that you want more homes on brownfield land or on non-valuable greenbelt. But to tell yeah, people, yes, in your backyard. I mean, this is... What can I say? This feels quite reckless politics from Keir Starmer. It worries me that it's not totally clear that uh, the Labour marginal candidates are going to get a kind of love no, him for Dory this. Tory leaflets will be churning off the printing presses as we speak because this is a classic issue that you fight local campaigns on and any Tory MP defending seats like this will be doing it. And remember, I think it's worth saying, because this is news that's broken today, not everything is going Labour's way at the moment. We've just had the news that Lisa Cameron, who's an SNP MP, has defected to the Conservatives. That's not something you would expect to happen to a tail-end government, you know, a government about to face a massive defeat. They've actually got MPs from other parties defecting to them, and they'll be very pleased with that. So what you're saying, George Osborne, the Tories' Yimby champion, you're saying that in another dimension of politics, Rishi Sunak is going to depart from your preferred way forward and the Tories will double down on Nimbyism for the election. Well, to be fair to Rishi Sunak, he did try to reverse some of the laws that prevented houses being built, like the law that said, you know, the nutrient uh, content of the soil meant you couldn't build any new homes. But Labour blocked him doing that. So the other thing Starmer's going to find is it's a lot harder to actually build these homes than to promise to build them. And I know I've been there. I've, I've worn the high-vis. In fact, the, I used to go around these building sites wearing high-vis as the most visible deck way I could show that things were happening in the economy. I always thought you should have got a bigger hat, though, because it always looked a bit perched on the top of your head, if you, if you ask me. Uh, there are lots and lots of Labour candidates, in fact, Labour MPs, in fact, Labour members of the Shadow Cabinet who have on their websites their strong opposition to Conservatives bulldozing the Greenbelt to build new houses. I remember um, having this discussion with Lisa Nandy about her opposition to local housing in her seat um, a few months ago. So this is going to be complex for Keir Starmer. We have not heard the last of Keir Starmer the Yimby. No, that is true. Now, questions. Thank you again for all the questions you have been sending in. And of course, you can continue to Submit questions, thoughts, comments on the show to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And our first one comes from Josh, who asks this. Hi, George and Ed. Really enjoyed the podcast, particularly the economic slant. What are your thoughts on recent political books by May, Truss, Stuart, Campbell, Streeting? What sort of reform is needed? Thinking particularly politics on the edge. That's Rory Stewart's book. Have you bought it? I have to confess, I went into Hatchards. I saw it and I did look through the index to see my name and his references to me. And I read those in Hatchards and then I didn't buy the book. I'm really sorry, You Rory, didn't buy but, it. But I do. The, Rory's got a brilliant book called The Places in Between, which is about him walking across Afghanistan. But I George, think I know what it, digging. You, I, you're in this hole now. You're think, in the hole. Stop digging. I would go I think to I know what Rory Stewart thinks about. I, I think I know what he thinks about politics. I don't need to read another couple hundred pages. I would go in and check to make sure that my name isn't in the index. 
<laughs> That's all I'm saying. He was quite nice about me, as we said. Okay, let's move on. And our final question this week comes from Woody, who's sent us a voice note. Hi, Ed, and hi, George. Only a quick one for me, but as a novice of politics who's learning week on week, I would greatly appreciate it if you could provide the occasional definition for the jargon often used in politics, which the average Joe like me may not be aware of. To kick things off, I was hoping you could help me understand what a three-line whip is. Many thanks and keep up the good work. George, you know about whips. That's because I was a junior whip, uh, in fact, the junior whip. And three-line whip is basically an instruction that says you have to vote. You Mm. have to turn up and vote. It goes back to fox hunting, doesn't it? When, um, you know, in the the 18th century, when Parliament was really getting going and new approaches, the whips were the people who whipped the dogs into the pack. And that's where the phrase came from. And, you know, the younger pit and all those guys would talk about whips and because that was part of their, their weekend lives. By the way, there's also a majority whip in the US Congress, so it, it, was, it was exported abroad. The, the three-line whip comes from the fact that you you receive, and when I started as an MP, it was on, in paper, now it comes on an email, uh, the instruction to vote. And if something is underlined three times, that is saying to you that you have to turn up. You know That is, you are going to be in very serious trouble as a, a Labour or Tory MP if you don't turn up to support your party. And also vote the right way. And vote, yes, don't turn up and vote the wrong way. Did you ever um, break a three-line whip and vote in the other direction? I only once abstained on a three-line whip, and that was on gay adoption. Ian Duncan Smith mm. said that we had to vote against it. And I picked two rebels in my intake to vote, uh, not to vote against, but to abstain. And those two rebels were David Cameron and Boris Johnson. And I don't know what happened to them. I missed one three-line whip, and it was the very first three-line whip when I became an MP in 2005, but I'd not quite got my head round how it all worked. And I was doing a talk at the Institute of Directors in Trafalgar Square, and suddenly I looked at my my pager, and it said, three-line whip, vote now. And I was at Trafalgar Square, and I suddenly said, at the meal, I would, was speaking, and I suddenly said, I'm really sorry, it's a three-line whip, I've got to go, stood up, and ran out of the room. Goodness knows what they thought about, the, you know, the people at this dinner. And I sprinted all the way down Whitehall, and I got into the palace and up the stairs and I arrived just as they shut the doors. So I missed the you missed it. The deputy chief whip was standing there and he looked at me and he said, you tosser. And that was my only three-line whip debacle. But it wasn't the last time that was said to you in politics. That is possibly true. <laughs> however. So, anyway. However. That was a great idea, Woody. Uh, we'd love more of these. If there's a term in politics or economics you don't understand, you'd like us to try and explain it to you then. Just send them in and we'll do our best. Yep, send them in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. That's all for this week. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.